And this is something else. Hear the word of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for every word which uh, which has proceeded from your mouth and which has been made available to us in the Holy Scriptures. Again, thinking of what was taught in Sunday school, that which is, as Edward says, every single word of it hateful to our adversaries, the devil and the world. But we find uh, by the surprising work of grace in our lives that every word suddenly becomes precious to us so that we we must read it and, and we simply can't hear enough about it. And so, Lord, here's an entire sermon on two verses, but we pray that it would weary none, but it would be to the delight to the delight of all, all who have true faith. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we have here uh, concluded, I would say, what was uh, seen as one paragraph, verses 12 through 19, the teaching in which we find the comparison and the, the contrast between Adam and Christ. And obviously, out of that contrast arises uh, the superiority and the grandeur and the majesty of Jesus Christ, especially as he's seen not so much in his sacrifice, that would be chapter 3, but in his obedient life. An obedience that he rendered unto God, unto us, uh, unto our justification. And that stands out more clearly, and this is the apostolic method, when you contrast that to the disobedience of Adam. But as we come to verses 20 and 21, it begins, and this is a telling word with moreover, verse 18, therefore, indicating a conclusion, verse 20, moreover, which uh, presents something like an afterthought. Or just an additional thought. Let me say one more thing Paul is saying in the course of this teaching. In essence, what he's doing is tying up a loose end. And the careful reader uh, might have noticed it in the reading uh, of those verses and in the course of the preaching. In fact, when I came to this verse, I said, now there's something at the end that Paul is going to say about this, but not until he gets to the end. And that is verse 13. Where he says, until the law, sin was in the world. And he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't talk about the law again until he gets to verse 20. He talks about sin being in the world. He talks about Adam. He talks about death. But he presents the law and then he just leaves it hanging. That's the loose end that he ties off here. Once again, we might note, and I find this satisfying. I, I don't know uh, if this is a common sentiment. But, but, but the tidiness and the orderliness of his thought is uh, is very satisfying to me. Paul is addressing here a concern that he's addressed before. It was a common concern, a pressing concern in the early church, and it's one which I would say uh, is always pressing in a case where the gospel is being presented in its freeness, in its fullness, in its gracious character, and that is what then of the law? In light of this teaching about Adam and then Christ, what then of the law? What purpose does it have when God gave it so many years after Adam and sin and death were in the world? You see, that's how he presents it here in uh, Romans chapter five. He also presents it the same way in Galatians three. He gave the promise to Abraham there. It's Abraham who came first, not Adam. But either way, there's a fundamental thing that happened before the law was given. And then the law came much later. 
so that the law suddenly appears as something which is secondary, not primary. Now, that was a great scandal to the Jew. But it was very, very important to Paul to stress that the law was secondary. But in saying that it was secondary, he wasn't saying it had no purpose. That was an overreaction to his teaching. And so they were asking, does it have any value? Are you just setting it aside entirely? You remember what Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. But do you realize why he said that? It's because he knew that the effect of his teaching would be that it would arouse that question in his hearers. It is the same, uh, it is the same in Paul's teaching. He's already done this, in fact, in, in Romans chapter 3. He stressed, again, the negative aspect of the law, that, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Entirely negative in character in his presentation there. And yet he is concerned to stress it is not, therefore, worthless. So he goes on to say in verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. Or on the uh, certainly not on the contrary, we establish the law. And so Paul is clarifying the purpose of the law and he's affirming the place of the law in the economy of God. And in this, moreover, he is addressing that. But he's also in the moreover, not just tying up this loose end, but he is beginning. And you remember, chapter headings did not exist in the Greek. They came much later in the English Bibles. And so you wouldn't be reading chapter 5. You would just be at this portion in Romans if you were reading it in the Greek. He's beginning to anticipate what comes in what we call chapter 6. He's beginning to introduce a new teaching. And that is... Uh, now, a new contrast that he uh, that he explores at the end of chapter five and then he, he amplifies in chapter six, not Adam and Christ, but law and grace, law and grace. And you notice it's the same formula that we had in, in verses 12 through 19. Uh, verse verse 21, as sin, even so grace. As sin, even so grace. As in Adam, even so Christ. Same formula. And we even find the, the, the familiar phrase, much more. Grace abounded much more. Verse 20. And so, even though the terms have changed, the basic comparison and the basic contrast remains the same. On the side of law and sin... The same as on the side of Adam, certain things are true. They are certain to happen. But once you see this, you immediately realize that on the other side of the contrast, that other things are just as certain, only much more so on the side of grace. And so uh, on the side of sin, Paul says, uh, or excuse me, uh, on, on one side, on the side of the law, sin is abounding, abounding. But on the other side, grace is abounding much more. And so to sum up the teaching that we have in these two verses, uh, I would note two main purposes, and these would be the two main headings of the sermon. The first is to explain the purpose of the law in light of the over, overall teaching, and especially verse 13, until the law, sin was in the world. Well, what then of the law? If sin was in the world before the law, why did God give the law? And then verse uh, or, or excuse me, the second point being 
The first point is to explain the purpose of the law. Number two, that Paul might uh, demonstrate in light of that contrast the uh, uh, super abundant character of grace. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Paul is seeking to show that whatever sin may have done, grace has done much more, altogether more. We notice, therefore, uh, grace is super, uh, superlative, rather. It's superlative character. It's overwhelming, overflowing nature in comparison to sin. So those are the two purposes. But beginning with the first of these, the purpose of the law, and we could notice a twofold purpose. Again, Paul asking the question which he asked in Galatians 3, why then the law? Why was it added? And this is a favorite subject of Paul's. He spoke of it often, the purpose of the law. This is so necessary to our grasp of the gospel itself because a true conception of sin through the law is essential to a clear grasp of our need of the gospel. Just as uh, distorted views as to sin and the law inevitably lead to distorted views of grace and the gospel. And so a misunderstanding on the subject of the law leads to many errors. This is why uh, Jesus and the apostles teach on it so often. And there is a twofold purpose in giving the law. Paul says, first, in relation to sin. It's relation to sin. God's giving the law through Moses is that it causes sin to abound. It causes sin to abound. How so? Well, Paul says, and here I'm giving uh, something of an amplified translation, but this really gives the true sense here. He merely says the law entered, but the, uh, the real effect of the word, if you looked at it in the Greek, and the commentators are sure to note this, the idea is actually that of entering alongside of. The law entered alongside of something. Very similar to what Paul says when he says that the law, uh, in Galatians 3, the law was added. It's the same idea. It didn't come first, in other words. It came, well, second or third or wherever in the, in, in the scheme you want to place it, but it wasn't first. It was added afterwards. And this is evident when you take the whole teaching as 1 verse 12. He says that sin entered the world. We know the way that sin entered the world. We're familiar with the teaching now. It entered the world not through the law, but it entered the world through the sin of Adam. And if you take verse 20 together with verse 12, sin entered through the, uh, the sin of Adam. Verse 20 is now saying that the law was added to that. It was added as something in addition to that. It entered alongside of the sin which came in through the sin of Adam. Alongside of sin. The sin that already was in the world because of Adam's sin. Indeed, verse 13 confirms this. He speaks of until the law sin was in the world. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, because Adam sinned against a clear command. But those who lived from Adam to Moses did not. Sin came first. Sin was in the world before the law was given. The law through Moses came later, indeed much later. It was added, it entered alongside of. And what was the effect of the law as it entered the scene, so to speak, in redemptive history alongside of sin? And what was its relation in particular to sin itself, the sin of man? 
Well, the effect of the law, again, was not to bring in sin since it was already there, but it was to cause it to abound. The effect of adding the law was to increase sin. Now, uh, John Murray, I think, says something very pertinent here. He says we would have expected the opposite. We would have expected God now giving the law through Moses to be curtailing sin and reining it in. But the reality was that now that God gave the law, sin was seen in its abundant and overwhelming character more clearly than ever before. The effect of adding the law, in other words, now that sin was in the world through Adam's sin was to make the situation worse, not better. And Paul in Romans, I I don't really have time, I don't think, to read this. And eventually we'll get there. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. The Apostle Paul is eloquent in that regard, where he reflects upon his own experience as a sinner in relation to the law of God. And what he found as he relates in those verses is that the effect of the law upon him as a sinner was not to dampen his desire to sin, but to awaken it all the more. And so let me put it even as boldly as this. The effect upon the, uh, of the law upon a sinner is that it makes him sin. And it makes him sin more than he would in the context where there was no law. It makes the situation worse, not better. And what Paul is saying here is that this is the express purpose of God. This was the design of God in giving the law and, and even in waiting to give the law. He allowed sin to come in the world through Adam, and then he waited a long time to give the law through Moses. This is what God wanted to happen. He wanted, in other words, and I said I was reading Voss this week. Voss is wonderful in this regard. Really, this is the testimony of the whole Old Testament, he says. God wanted to highlight the dilemma of sin, which is the dilemma of man. He wanted man to become keenly aware of his own sinfulness and thus his hopelessness before God with respect to the law and salvation. And so uh, to to restate the argument of Galatians chapter three, that God wanted to keep all this is verse 23 to keep all under guardianship or even uh, in a prison house of the law until the mediator should come. And until they should learn this awful lesson. He wanted to teach us all about sin And our inability to keep the law in order, verse 24, again, Galatians 3, in order that we might see our need of a redeemer. And so the law was not just our prison cell in which we were kept, or the Jews at least, but it was our great schoolmaster that was teaching us this great lesson, that of inability, that of condemnation, that of death as the wages of sin. But he certainly, this is the point that I must underline, he certainly did not Give the law through Moses as a way of salvation. He did not offer the law unto man through Moses as a way out of his dilemma. But rather as a way to trap him further still. He added the law, stated positively, he added the law in order that the way of justification might be clearly seen as by faith and faith alone. And you see that in Romans 3 and Galatians chapter 3. I think we're familiar now with the arguments. Justification does not come by the law. It comes by faith alone. And it was the law of all things that taught us that first. And what this means, 
going back to what he says and tying up the loose end of verse 13, is that once the law came in, and I think I've been saying this already, the situation became much more serious, much more desperate. As bad as things were in Genesis 6, when you read of the flood, things became much more serious following the giving of the law. So that, yes, Paul could say, and we along with him, sin was in the world before this. And people still perished on account of sin and their participation in Adam's sin. But how much worse did things become once the law had entered? How much did sin then begin to increase and abound in the world? That's the teaching. Until the law, sin was in the world because of Adam's sin. But once the law was given, sin proliferated by an order of magnitude. Sin uh, or law in relation to sin, first of all, law in relation to grace, the second purpose of the law. And this takes into account the overall teaching of verses 20 and 21. Uh, The law came in that sin might abound. Yes, but even as sin was abounding, grace abounded all the more or much more, much more. Again, that favorite expression. I think all the more is the ESV and I'll, I'll state my preference for that. It abounded all the more. And so we could say the law causes Sin to abound, but it likewise causes grace to abound, even as sin is abounded, abounding. And let us also say, to an even greater extent than it caused sin to abound. And that's clear when you take the entire statement as one. The law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And he says essentially the same thing in verse 21. It is just as the law is added unto sin, causing it to abound, that grace, once it enters alongside of both, is seen to abound all the more. Not to the same extent. No, Paul says, much more. Grace abounding, as Bunyan says in his famous title of his autobiography, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. That's what Paul is describing, even as sin is abounding. And again, I ask, which is abounding more in case any should wonder? Grace, Paul says. And it is just as sin is abounding and increasing and seeming to reach its very height. That grace enters in and makes sin to appear puny by comparison and even perhaps we could say insignificant. Not insignificant seen in itself and its relation to the law, but in relation to grace, puny. Really, there is no comparison at all. And so that brings me now to the second point, and that is the way, the way that grace abounds. The first point being the purpose of the law in relation to sin and in relation to grace. Now the way that grace abounds. And the first thing that I would say about that is that this is simply the nature of grace itself. Grace, to speak of grace is to speak of its abundance, to speak of its magnificence, to speak of its overwhelming, overflowing uh, nature. This is what John does at the beginning of his gospel. I I, I couldn't help but think of this all the time uh, this week. For of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. John 1, 16. Or in other translations, grace upon grace. Of his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. This overwhelming, abundant uh, character of grace is it comes to the believer through Jesus Christ, the waters of everlasting life, grace upon grace, not just grace, 
but grace upon grace. But the, the overwhelming nature of grace as it comes to the believer through Christ, through faith in Christ, is clearer still when you compare it to the abundance of sin. And this, it seems, is one of the apostles' favorite methods, just as he was doing with Adam and Christ. The way to magnify the obedience of Christ and what he secures for us is by comparing it to the disobedience of Adam. It's the same thing here. The law-grace contrast, which uh, is so prominent in Paul, and it will become the prominent thought in chapter 6. And so the way to see, this is the teaching of these two verses, the way to see the grace upon grace that Jesus brings and gives out of his fullness is to notice the contrast. Grace in comparison to law and sin. This is the way to appreciate the full measure of grace. It is to see first the way that sin abounds. As I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons on these verses, and I'm preaching one sermon on these two verses. You will thank me. He preached six, and I read them all. He, he said one thing, although I've already quoted him once. I think I'm going to quote him again, but I, I don't have the quote, but it's in my mind. One thing that really uh, arrested my attention, and he said this, in essence, that the man who appreciates grace most, grace most is always the man who appreciates And who understands his own sinfulness. He sees sin as abounding. He sees the abundance of sin in his life and in the world. And this is what makes him a debtor to mercy alone, as Top Lady says. Buchanan, in his book on justification, and I won't summarize this, I'll just read it to you. He says, partial and defective views of sin have always been associated with partial and defective views of salvation. The man who has a defective view of grace and the gospel is the man who has a partial and a defective view of sin. The man who has a very full appreciation for the sinfulness of sin in relation to the law as a personal concern is the man who is most apt to magnify grace. In fact, he goes on to say that every revival has been accompanied or preceded by a work of conviction, the law work, the conviction of sin, the sense that sin is abundant in our lives. This is what precedes that mighty work of grace that God has so often been pleased to bring to the refreshment of the church. And when you entertain this comparison in your own life and you see grace as an eminently personal concern, your own need of grace, what you will notice once more, and I would underline this, is the superlative nature of grace. Notice the comparison. Sin abounds, but grace Super abounds. That's one of the ways you could translate it or simply it abounds much more. It abounds all the more. And so the basic thought of verses 15 through 17 are essentially repeated. There is, of course, a parallel. It's that's the contrast between Adam and Christ. But in reality, as you look at the parallel, the the balance falls decidedly on one side. It falls on the side of Christ. Verses 15 through 17. So it falls likewise on the side of grace. On the side of sin, we could say sin does a great deal of damage. It kills, it destroys, it defiles. This will be part of the theme of the evening sermon on the trespass offering. How much damage sin does in the life of man. It it defiles his conscience. It makes him feel guilty before God. It destroys relationships. It alienates him from God and man. It ultimately kills him. 
But grace on the other side of the ledger does much more than undo the effects of sin. Let us underline that as well. It places us in a positive position. Sin takes away, it robs, it kills. Grace is the bestowal of a gift. And this magnificent gift from the great king of heaven. The bestowal even of the kingdom of God and everlasting life. Yes, it does much more than undo the effects of sin. It is the bestowal of something positive. Not only that, sin and its effects can be measured. There is a terminus to sin's activity and that is death. Sin is an awful comprehensive system, but it is one that has limits. But grace has none. There are no limits to grace. Grace simply goes on and on. And that is the nature of grace. Grace upon grace. It never ends. It keeps abounding all the time, even unto eternity itself, once it has been found in the person of Jesus. And so again, what Paul is emphasizing here is this overwhelming abundance, the unsearchable riches of the grace of God as it is found in Christ Jesus. And thus Paul speaks of its tendency to amaze us, its surprising character in the life of man, the grace of God. How once grace begins to reign in a man's life, he is always amazed by it. He's always surprised by it. And more and more, the longer he experiences and lives by grace. And so Paul can recount, uh, like Bunyan, that he was the chief of sinners, and yet grace found him and it saved him. I am the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, and yet, by grace he was saved. And that was a grace he was always anxious to preach, a grace that he always gloried in, something that he was always learning in his experience, so that is another instance later on in the life, the experience of the thorn in the flesh. What was the lesson he learned there, aside from his own weakness? And, and, and equally, let me say, the severity of God at times in the life of the believer. That God afflicts us and he doesn't stop afflicting us even when we beg him to. What did he learn? He learned the wonderful surprising character of grace. The grace of God. My grace is sufficient for you. And in the weakness of man, my, uh, my power is perfected, God said. And in so many others, Paul Bunyan and so many others, the testimony of believers is always this wonderful discovery. But again, as I say, the way to see this is to consider the comparison itself. For just as sin is seen to abound through the law, what, uh, what Buchanan calls simply the work of conviction, we immediately see on the other side, great indeed must be that grace which saves us from its power. This great menacing power in the lives of men. What could possibly deliver us from the dominion of sin and Satan? Grace is the answer. This overwhelming, conquering power of God to deliver us out of the power of sin. Consider the contrast. On the one side, and again, by the way, you notice the, the perfect parallel that he presents in these two verses. What is true of sin is equally true of grace, only much more so. Always be sure to add that. And so, first of all, he says that sin is reigning. There's three things we can say about sin. It's activity in a man's life. And the first is that it is reigning. Just as soon as it comes into a man's life, does it begin to reign. Mart Lloyd-Jones, sin is a tyranny 
Or I would say it is a dominating, enslaving power. It enslaves man. That's what we'll see very soon in Romans chapter 6. And that is the testimony of the, the unconverted man, now converted. I once was a slave to sin. I once was blind, but now I see that. We'll soon sing that. And as you look about the world around you, that's what you notice most. The slavery to sin. The way they cannot help but sin, always. But sin isn't only reigning and enslaving and dominating, but it is abounding, secondly. Another word for this is it is increasing. And it's always increasing all the time. Things are always getting worse, not better. If you think about the the person, the individual in sin, this becomes especially clear, although we could also easily do a study of our own nation and see the same thing. To be in sin is not to be in a position where things are getting better. It is to be in a position of decline or of declension, as the Puritans would speak, a state of declension. Things are getting worse all the time as sin is increasing all the more in the life of the sinner. And the way that it increases, let me just remind you, is not just through the prevailing character of sin. It it is that, but it is in particular, Paul says, through the law. The law is what is inciting men to sin more and more. The law, something which Paul says is good and which we know is good, which only highlights for us the evil of sin, that it seizes something which is altogether good and it causes sin to abound in the life of the sinner. But thirdly, sin kills. In fact, the way that it reigns in particular is through death. Sin reigned in death or unto death. That is where its reign is most apparent, not in uh, the ever-increasing sin in a sinner's life, but in the fact that the sins which he committed killed him ultimately. But if you look on the other side of the contrast, again, you notice the perfect parallel. But then you will also notice how much more we get by grace than we lost by sin. And we might notice here, and let me underline this as well, that the antithesis of sin is not law. The antithesis of sin is grace. And so the other side of the contrast is grace. Grace is the answer to sin. And the first thing that Paul says about sin, or excuse me, grace, in answer to sin is that it rains. And it it rains in the same way that sin reigned, only much more so. Grace dominates. Grace controls Grace is a power and a force in a man's life. My power is perfected in weakness. That's what God said to Paul, just as Paul gloried in in the fact that God's grace was sufficient for him. He was learning all about not only grace, but the power of God. They're synonyms in many ways. And the power which is active in grace is greater than the power of sin. And how helpful it is for us to see grace as reigning. Reigning in the life of the believer. For if it were not, then there could be no salvation. And, and, and not only would we not be uh, justified, but we could never be sanctified. Do you realize that Paul is building out the contrast of what it is to be an Adam and in Christ? To be in Christ is to be under the reign and the power of grace. And this has dramatic implications for Christian living. The sinner set free from sin. The sinner set free to live out the dictates now of the law. We'll have ample time to consider that in Romans chapter 6. But 
again, I would just emphasize how important it is that we see sin not as reigning and enslaving anymore in our lives, but grace. And to stop acting as though we are victims of sin, when rather we are conquerors and reigning in grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is reigning. Here is the amazing thing. And this highlights the surprising character of grace. It is reigning even as sin is abounding. Even as we still find in our lives an abundance of sin. And the way that it reigns in our lives is important to notice. Paul stresses this in verse 21. It is through righteousness. So as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you beginning to see how it all fits together? Grace abounds to sinners in their justification first and foremost. And there it begins to reign. And it is a reign which will never cease. Even as the believer continues to sin, nothing, not even sin, can stop grace Grace's vast increase once it has begun to reign. And, and, and again, this is the great and glorious theme of chapter 6, which we will soon explore in detail. But uh, to go on with the list, grace not, is not only reigning, but it is super abounding. On the other side, we, we, we can say that sin abounds, and we ought to be honest about that. But grace super abounds. So that we could say, to put it another way, Yes, sin abounds, but its abundance is nothing like that of grace. How limitless God's grace appears to us in Jesus Christ, especially as it is seen to reign through righteousness, through his righteousness unto the sinner's justification. And as it is seen as the potent force by which sin's reign has ended. Let me read another place in Paul where he speaks like this. In him we have, this is Ephesians chapter 1, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us. It's the same idea. This abundance, this overwhelming character of grace. The riches which God caused to abound to us through the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. In our justification, but also Unto life itself. And that is the third point. Sin reigns unto death. Grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. So that its reign and superabundance are seen most clearly in the bestowal of eternal life. And life is something altogether better than death. It belongs in the category of the much more. Eternal life, he says, through Jesus Christ our Lord. A right to eat of the tree of life lost by Adam. To live and to reign with him forever. To be taken out of the realm of sin and death altogether. And now to begin to live with Christ. A life that we will never lose. To live and to reign with him. And I would ask ask you to ask yourself in closing. What but grace... Grace, as it is found in Jesus Christ, could have ever stopped the reign of sin in your life. Brought you out of its enslaving, condemning, killing power. Could the law? No, it could not. For we know that the law only makes matters worse. Not only is the teaching of scripture, but also from our own personal experience. What then could stop the reign of sin? 
And the answer of scripture and the testimony of every believer is that there's only one power great enough to do so. And that is the power of grace as it reigns through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord, unto eternal life. Which is the great subject of the book of Romans. If anything, verse 21 is a summary of the teaching of the whole book. And that power, the power of grace is altogether greater than the reign of sin. Yes, grace is a power. Grace is a reign. It is given to believers in abundant measure. And I ask you, do you know anything about it? Is Paul describing your own experience of the grace and the power of salvation? Grace as it is found in abundance in the person of Jesus Christ. Grace now as the dominating, enslaving, controlling principle of your life. Thank God we not only learn about it here, but we soon will get to talk all about it in Romans chapter 6. Until then, praise God for his word and let us now come to the table. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, I think it's fitting, as always, to connect uh, this to the sermon and to see this as the first test and uh, the first chance to improve upon the sermon. What was the subject of the sermon? I'll ask my kids that. I hope you can say the grace of God. And then I might ask you a second question. Where is that grace found? And if you say Jesus, that's good. Even better if you say through the righteousness of Christ unto eternal life. And in the sinner's justification, but even beyond that, the whole of his life. The Lord's Supper is called a means of grace and for good reason. And this means of grace is tied directly to Jesus Christ. And it is tied directly to him in his death. Uh, That great means of grace to believers. The great means of their pardon and forgiveness and justification. Uh, The first installment, you might say, if you take death together with resurrection, there you have the fullness. He was delivered over for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. And here is something that we ought to celebrate and we ought to rejoice in. But even beyond that, and this is the great mystery of the sacrament that uh, let's say I was in a theology exam. Even then, I would say I'm I'm not sure I can quite explain it to you uh, to a room full of ministers. But the, the great mystery of the sacrament is that Christ ties this directly to himself in his sacrifice. And he is saying to us that by means of this sacrament, we are communing with him 
in his sacrifice. And beyond that, I can say no more. That is the mystery of the sacrament. When Christ says, this is my body and this is my blood, he is, he is sacramentally, and even by saying it that way, I'm confessing, I don't quite understand how, but he is sacramentally connecting the bread to his body, sacrifice for sinners, and the cup to his blood poured out for our forgiveness. And we ought to come to the table, if you think of what Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 11, with all due reverence understanding that. Not as a light and trivial thing, though the temptation is there. A small piece of bread, a small cup of wine. To the eyes and to the flesh, these are certainly trivial. But to the eyes of faith, and according to the command and the institution of Christ, there is something weighty here and even something which is sacred and thus precious to the believer in his faith. And it becomes to him a means of grace by Christ's own appointment. Now, having said that, I invite all who uh, sincerely trust in Christ and look for him in the sacrament uh, to come and to partake of him. Uh, But those who still regard it as something which is light and trivial, according to Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 11, and that might even be a believer, but someone who is yet to prize the sacrament itself, I, well, I warn you not to come. Uh, But with those words of invitation, as well as fencing, let us pray together and then I'll distribute the sacraments. Father.